We are in the book of Haggai chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Haggai 2, 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Will you bow with me for prayer? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it penetrates our hearts and lives this morning. As we look at the sovereignty of God and how it can bring encouragement to people who are discouraged. May we know that truth. May we experience that truth. And may we proclaim that truth in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dr. Park Tucker was a former chaplain, as we have some music playing randomly, <laughs> of the federal, that, now I'm not going to sing a song, trust me, I'd clear this church out, um, former chaplain of the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. He was told of walking down the street in a certain city, feeling low and depressed and worried about life in general. And as he walked along, he lifted his eyes for a moment to the window of a funeral home across the street. He blinked his eyes a couple times, wondering whether his eyes were deceiving him. But sure enough, he saw in the window of that funeral home was this sign in large, bold words. Why walk around half dead? We can bury you for $69.50. P.S. We also give green stamps. <laughs> Dr. Tucker said the humor of it was good medicine for a soul. Many people are walking around half dead because worry has built a mountain of problems over which there is no path and they have surrendered to fate. This morning I want to talk to you about discouragement and perseverance and encouragement. And when it comes to perseverance, it almost seems outdated, especially in today's society when everything happens in an instant. We have microwaves so we can cook our food even faster. We have ways to make our coffee fast, and if all that fails, we have instant coffee. Or how about instant rice? And now we have these newfangled things called instant pots so we can cook things even faster in that pot instant is what sells instant is what people want perseverance is not take dieting for example 
Have you ever tried to diet? I'm sure many of you have tried to diet at some point or time in your life or to lose some weight. And you know what I've found is the easiest thing to do with diets? The easiest part of dieting is to start it. It's hard to persevere. And when you're hungry and you're exercising and your muscles are screaming at you, stop doing this crazy stuff. It's hard to keep going. It's also easy to get married. It's hard to persevere on our marriage when problems come your way. It's easy to start a ministry in the church. It's hard to keep on when problems arise and when the results of that ministry don't quite meet your expectations. So you see, what I'm getting at is many things are easy for us to start, but it takes perseverance to finish and to finish well. And this is the people in Haggai's time. We're just under a month of them obeying that initial message of rebuilding the temple. They've laid the foundation about 15 years prior, but the project then just sat there. However, now the leaders and the people have started working thanks to Haggai's word from the Lord. They started to rebuild on September 21st, 520 BC, because that was the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius. The seventh month for Israel began with a feast called the Feast of Trumpets. That would take place on the first day of the seventh month. This was followed by the, the Day of Atonement, which was on the tenth day, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles that went from the 15th through the 21st. On the last day of the feast, October 17th, Haggai delivers his second message to the people, and it is a message of God's encouragement and his encouragement for these people to persevere in the work of the temple which he's called them to do. What we see here is that God's sovereignty brings encouragement to discouraged people. So first let's notice that God knows and cares about our discouragement. God knows and cares about our discouragement. There are times that we struggle with really understanding that God knows about our discouragement. But not just that, but that God knows our discouragement and he really does care about it. He knew the reality of the situation for the people of Israel. He knew what they were thinking and feeling. He doesn't just ignore it, but he actually brings it up. He does this because God understands. And because he does care. And we must keep in mind that all of our troubles, the Lord understands them. That he cares about them. He cares for us. And if we forget that, then we will quickly become discouraged. I don't know about you, but I'm most discouraged in my life when I somehow convince myself the lie that Satan tells us, which is no one really cares, not even God. I believe this passage reveals to us some sources of discouragement that, that often come when we're serving the Lord. And so I want to look at these sources of discouragement this morning. First, losing our excitement can be discouraging. Losing our excitement can be discouraging. When we start something new or we set out to do something new, some sort of new thing, there's always a sense of excitement and adventure in doing that thing. This is often uh, the case in ministry as well when you're doing the Lord's work. However, what eventually happens is, is we kind of we get into the slow grind of doing things and the glow of the newness of what we are doing wears off. For the Israelites, they're looking at the building of this temple and all of the work that, is going, that it's going to require. And they know it will be a slow process. Have you ever had that happen? Something gets out of hand. Perhaps it's your house chores or, or something like that. And you, and you look and you realize the, the progress or the process back will be slow. And it's not really exciting because you're like, this is going to take me forever to do this. Perhaps... 
There, there were piles of rubble, rubble that needed to be removed. Or maybe some of them had a vision of, of putting the final touches on the temple, but they did not stop and think of all the work that was ahead of them and the enthusiasm that they had was wearing thin. I can't help but wonder how often things start out well, but there is no perseverance and the job never finishes. This happens in churches all the time. And I don't just mean ministry. So often a, a new church gets planted. And there's excitement. And they start off well, but soon the grind sets in and they can't finish. Or sometimes a church hires a new pastor. And there's excitement on both ends for about six months. Right? And then the grind sets in. <laughs> Suddenly he's just like every other pastor. He's asking me to do things I don't want to do. He's asking us to change stuff. And it sets in. The grind sets in. We can look around at our church even and say, well, well, we need revitalization. But you know what? It's long, hard work. The grind sets in. Will we be discouraged? Because we lose our excitement. Just like they did. In Haggai's day, losing our excitement can be discouraging, but also lags in progress can be discouraging. Lags in progress. Have you ever been working on a project only to have it delayed? Or maybe you've had something uh, else that you were working on and it got delayed. That can be discouraging. I've seen this a lot. Uh, I don't know if you ever watch home shows, but... I don't know why I tend, why I watch home shows. Probably because my wife watches them, so that's why I watch them. But anyway, I don't know if you ever watch like they're doing a makeover or they buy some house and and they got to go in and they got to fix all this stuff up in the house. They're doing all these things and and inevitably what happens? I can always tell you that what happens in these shows. It's like every time, okay? They start and then, oh no, there's bad news. We found that you have a pipe that's leaking or we found this problem. This is the way it always is. There's a problem. Project gets delayed, right? That's the way it always happens. And, and these people get discouraged because there's a delay. And it's the same when we're doing the Lord's work in my experience. It rarely moves as fast as we hope it would move. We get started and we're thinking, oh boy, People are just going to be beating down the walls of, of First Baptist Church. You watch out. We're going to have 150 people in here. We're not even going to be able to hold everybody. And we get all excited, right? And it's just slow. Lags in progress. And this is the Israelites. And they're working around all these feasts and the Sabbath days. In the seventh month, that would mean the work was most likely lagging behind. And it's so easy for that to happen in anything that we do for the Lord. And we get to doing something, but progress lags and we get discouraged. Thirdly, loyal oppositions and criticisms can be discouraging. When people remain loyal to one thing, and that is opposing or criticizing you, it's discouraging. It causes us to be discouraged. Look at verse 5. And notice that the Lord says, Do not fear. Do not fear. It's evident that the Lord would not tell them not to fear unless they had a reason to be afraid. He says, Do not fear. Now, we don't know why they would be afraid, but perhaps it was the same men who had threatened them at the Persian court 15 years prior. Let me be clear. Any time that you make the decision that you will follow God's will and do his work, you can count on Satan to bring opposition and criticism, and he will often use people to do it. 
God's word is clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but we are in a battle against the principalities of darkness that are opposed to the church of Jesus Christ. We better expect, church, that Satan will use people to bring loyal opposition and criticism against us if we're going to do the Lord's work. Fourthly, lucid pessimism. You're like, why would you come up with that lucid? Well, I was trying to keep them all else. <laughs> lucid pessimism, comparison, and faulty expectations can be discouraging. Often we trick ourselves into thinking that most opposition in churches comes from outside the church. But if we've been in church very long, we know that's not true. Because most opposition comes from within the walls of the church. And it comes in many different forms. Let me just share a few of them with you this morning. Here's one form. We tried that before. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. That's a terrible form of pessimism. When the Israelites had laid the foundation for the temple years before, there was great joy, but it was mixed with weeping. The young people who had not known the glory of the former temple were rejoicing. However, the old-timers were not rejoicing. They had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. They wept at this new temple. Why? Because it was not as great as the former temple. It didn't measure up to the former temple. And now the people would be even be older and they are still around when the work gets started back up. And, and you can just hear them saying, God's blessing just can't be on this temple. We tried this before. It didn't work. Pessimism. Let me share another one with you. It's one of my favorites. It's when people inside the church oppose you by comparisons. Now, I'm not picking on, the, on older people, okay? I, I know that a lot of our church is older folks. So I'm not picking on you, but I think that this passage lends itself to what I'm saying because it's comparing the former temple to the new temple, okay? And you can hear the old timers saying, oh boy, you should have seen Solomon's temple. Now that was a temple. I mean, look at this new temple. I don't even know if we can call this a temple compared to the old one. So, so in the church, it looks like this. Oh, you should have seen this church. 20 years ago. Oh boy. We had a church then. Or you should see that church on the other side of town. They have their act together. They got to be doing something right. Or sometimes it comes to me like this. Have you ever heard of David Platt? Boy, he can sure preach. You should listen to him sometime. Thank you for that great encouragement. I feel so much better now. <laughs> Let me give you one more. It kind of goes along with comparisons, but it's wrong expectations. The temple's being built. And you can almost hear the people asking, where's all of the gold? Solomon's temple was lined with gold. Why isn't there any gold here for the temple? Listen, I've heard the stories. I heard them when I was a youth pastor. I heard them as a pastor of how others did their job so much better than I do. You know that pastor, he visits everyone in the hospital, visits everyone in their home, visits everyone in the church, has all kinds of time for those that drop in his office and he still preaches the best sermons you ever heard on Sunday morning. Never neglects his family. The implication of that is why aren't you a better pastor? Why aren't you like other pastors I know? You see, pessimism, comparison, and wrong expectation 
just brings discouragement. Let me give you one more. A lacking view of success can bring discouragement or be discouraging. When it comes to success, especially in ministry, we often get caught up into looking at things externally instead of internally. So, for example, the temple, this temple is smaller than Solomon's temple. This temple does not have all of the gold that Solomon's temple has. This temple is not as nice as Solomon's temple was. However, look how God responds to such notions. Through Haggai the prophet, he says, I love God's response. I own all of the gold and silver in the world. God could cover the entire temple in gold. He could make the whole temple out of gold if that's what God desired to do. But instead, he's going to do something better. Instead of of gold, he's going to fill the temple with glory. The glory of the Messiah. You see, God does not view things the way we view them. Just because one church maybe is not as big as another and perhaps they don't have all of the cool stuff that the other church has, those things mean absolutely nothing to God. Do we think that God is somehow impressed with our appearance? Boy, if God could see me today. Listen, there are churches that have multi-million dollar facilities that do not honor God one single bit. They fail to preach His word. They refuse to promote the glory of God among the nations. And all that facility is, is a pile of wood, hay, and stubble that will one day all be burned up. God is not looking at success through our eyes like we look at success, but He is looking for the glory of Christ that's formed in the hearts of His People, not some sort of superficial outward sign of success. Because you don't care about the superficial outward sign of success. There's another view of success that's lacking as well. And that is the view of success that is instant as opposed to success that is eternal. None of those that worked on this temple lived to see its true glory, which exceeded that of Solomon's temple. That would not happen until the Messiah came, which was over 500 years after the completion of the temple. And even at that point, there were many who missed it. Look at what the Lord says in verse 6. Once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He's not speaking of chronological immediacy, but imminency, meaning this could happen at any time. Granted, there may have been a partial fulfillment in guys day when the powerful kingdoms were overthrown but the ultimate fulfillment is still in the future it's in our day god will share all the nations at the second coming of jesus christ he all that glory fills the temple and they they will bring the wealth of the nations to his temple that is why the author of hebrews quoted this exact verse in hebrews 12 26 And then he adds this, that the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken, will survive all divine judgments. This divine judgment was imminent. It means it can happen at any time in Haggai's day, and it's still imminent in our day. Now, if people in Haggai's day had a short-range view of success, they would have been terribly discouraged. Because they never saw the glory of the temple. But we have to remember, church, that with God, a thousand years is as a day. And true success will not be measured in this life. But will be measured in light of eternity. We must keep this in mind as we labor for the Lord. When Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, we must bear in mind that the harvest is reaped at the end of the age, not at the end of your life. God's timing is not our timing. Neither are his ways our ways. You may be here today faced with discouragement, but let me make it abundantly clear that God understands your discouragement, that God cares about your discouragement, but but he 
does not. He does not coddle us or let us stay in our discouragement. He doesn't. We don't find him doing that here. He doesn't coddle us and say, well, that's okay. You just stay there. You just be discouraged. It's all right. So let's see how God handles it. When we are discouraged, point number two, when we are discouraged, God calls us to perseverance. When we are discouraged, God calls us to perseverance. Now, I know that that can seem like it's not really that encouraging. Have you ever had someone who was discouraged and just told them, oh, that's okay. All you need to do is persevere. However, this is precisely what we see God doing. In fact, three times in one verse, he tells them to be strong. He tells them to work, keep on keeping on, persevere. When it comes to persevering, there are two aspects to this perseverance. One deals with our attitude, and the other deals with our action. So, perseverance with our attitude. Be strong. Perseverance with our attitude. Be strong. Perseverance has a lot to do with our attitude. The people in Haggai's day, they had the wrong attitude. They were weak people because they had lost their focus. Instead of being focused on the Lord, they had turned their focus onto the slow and disappointing progress of the temple. They had to be thinking, this is never going to get done. We're wasting our time. Our attitude affects our ability to persevere. When we lack motivation, we struggle. But when we have the motivation to get something done, we can work all night if need be just to get that project done. What's the difference? Our attitude. When we're discouraged, we procrastinate. We put things off. We never get around to finishing things. And the ministry landscape is riddled with pastors that have burned out and quit ministry altogether because of discouragement. There are times that burnout is caused from poor schedule management, but I can tell you from firsthand experience and talking with pastors that often the real cause of burnout is an attitude of discouragement from continual setbacks and disappointments in ministry. And finally, they throw their hands up in the air and they say, I'm done. I read recently that pastors are more likely to suffer from depression than anyone else and anxiety. And that 100% of pastors in a recent survey had a colleague who left the ministry because they were burned out or church conflict or some sort of moral failure. 100% knew someone. I have personal friends in ministry that struggle with deep depression. I could go on and on. Like 75% report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 90% feel fatigued and worn out every single week. 70% say they're grossly underpaid. 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 78% were forced to resign from their church. 63% at least twice. Most commonly because of church conflict. 80% will not be in ministry 10 years later, 80% of pastors will not be in ministry 10 years from now. And only a fraction make it a lifelong career. Listen to this. 91% have experienced some form of burnout in ministry. And 18% say they are fried to a crisp right now. But there's more. 70% a pastor say they have a lower self-esteem now than when they entered ministry. Seventy, we've got to keep the pastor humble. Seventy percent constantly fight depression. Fifty percent feel so discouraged that they would leave their ministry if they could, but they can't find another job. Eighty percent believe their pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. And thirty-three percent said it was an outright hazard to their family. Eighty percent of ministry spouses feel left out and unappreciated in their church. Seventy-seven percent feel they do not have a good marriage. Forty-one percent display anger problems in marriage reported by their spouse. 38% are divorced or divorcing. 50% admit to using pornography. 
report inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church, 65% feel their family is in a glass house. I'm not done. 70% do not have someone they consider to be a close friend. 50% do not meet regularly with an accountability person or a group. 72% only study the Bible when preparing for sermons or lessons. 21% spend less than 15 minutes a day in prayer. The average is 39 minutes per day. 44% of pastors do not take a regular day off. And 85% have never taken a sabbatical. I don't think pastors should ever feel discouraged. But you know what I've noticed? In America, we are emotionally fragile. And when someone offends us, we get our feelings hurt. We drop out of service and we call it quits. Someone doesn't do what we want them to do. And we're done. We quit. Someone gives us some criticism and we can't let it go. We cut ties and we run. But God says, be strong. We can't be strong in our own strength, but in God's strength. But we still must be strong. We all, all of us have to be strong. We must hang in there despite the obstacles that we are faced with. Stop looking at the issues through your own eyes. Stop looking at the problems through your own eyes and understand that you need to see them through the eyes of God. And when we fail to factor God into the equation, we fail to see things in their proper perspective. Amen. Be strong. You remember 12 spies entered the land of Canaan. Ten of them came back and they focused on the giants in the land. They said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. There is no way we can conquer them. But Joshua and Caleb came back and they said, because God is with us and he has promised us this land, we will defeat them. Only two out of ten had the right attitude. Be strong in your attitude, church. Focus on the Lord and what He can do, not on yourself. Perseverance in our attitude and perseverance in our action. God says, be strong, and then He says, work. So what we see is attitude gives us the motivation to do something. But motivation without work will not get the temple built. Joshua and Caleb had the right attitude. They had the motivation to do something. They wanted to trust the Lord, but they still had to go into the land and fight the giants. You see, the right attitude alone doesn't get you far in life. It's kind of like good intentions. You can have good intentions, but unless you act on them, they're useless. And much of the Lord's work I have found is about perspiration, not just inspiration. I often feel that way when, when I'm preparing a sermon. I don't read a passage of scripture and then just think of a sermon. Like I don't, I don't read Haggai chapter 2 and then boom, sermon just pops out. It doesn't work that way. I put hard work into it. I research. I read. I read some more. Then I read some more. Then I read some more. And then I research some more. Then I look up this Greek word. Then I look up that Greek word. And I say, well, what does this mean? Or why is this talking about this? Or what does this have to do with this? And I say, well, how do I apply this to my church today? What's it saying to us? And then I read some more. And then I check my grammar. And I put it through this grammar checker. And I make sure that all my grammar seems to be okay. And then I don't pay attention to that when I preach it anyway. <laughs> and then Saturday night... Right before I preach it on Sunday morning, I go over it and read it. And say, okay, I'm saying this and this and this. Listen, just because the Lord has given you a gift doesn't mean you don't work for Him. Doesn't mean it's just going to flow out of you without effort. To persevere 
You must not only be strong, but you have to work. And I'm convinced so often as Christians, we just don't want to do the work. We don't want to work. Well, I don't have the time to do that. I can't do that. That's going to be hard. Yeah. God gives us encouragement by revealing to us that he understands and cares about our discouragement. And he encourages us to persevere and be strong and get to work. Now let's see. God's sovereignty brings encouragement. There should be no greater encouragement to us than the sovereignty of God. Knowing and trusting that God is always in control of all things at all times should be of great comfort to us. Knowing that God is never caught off guard should be a significant comfort to each and every believer. And this passage is no different. We have this focus on God's sovereignty, in particular his presence, his promise, and his prophecy. And only a sovereign God could make such a claim and then bring it about. So let's first see the encouragement by his presence. God tells everyone to be strong and work. And then he adds to it, for I am with you. What a great comfort to know that God is with us. Not only is he with us, but it says, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is with us. He is the supreme ruler over all things. All armies of heaven and earth, God is the supreme ruler. Now, if the Lord of hosts is with us, then let me ask you, as scripture asks, then who can be against us? No one. Who can defeat us? No one. This is what is beautiful about the sovereignty of God. When we are serving Him, there is nothing that happens to us by accident or without His express permission. It may be an accident to you, but it's not an accident to God. Having the assurance of His presence should bring us to comfort and it should lead you out of your comfort zone and it should enable you to persevere to know God's in control. David Livingston, one of the greatest missionaries known, said, Would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I could not understand and whose attitudes towards me was always uncertain and often even hostile? It was this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. On those words, I staked everything, and they have never failed. Church, he's with us. Are you encouraged by his presence? Presence of the Almighty. And we could sit back and say, well, what if we did this? He's with us. Well, what if we stepped out into this? He's with us. Well, what, if we, what if we risk this? He's with us. God is with us. His presence is with us. Not only do we have encouragement by his presence, but we have encouragement by his promise. In verse 5, we have this promise that's laid out. God made a covenant with Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now he gives them a promise just like he had them. That is, his spirit would go with them and abide in their midst. And for this reason, they had no need to fear. Now check this out. God has made a better covenant with us than he did with them. How do we know this? Because he says so. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 when he says, We have a covenant and acted on better promises. Jesus sealed the new covenant with his own blood. He gave us the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. John 14, 16. And when we get discouraged in our service for the Lord, we must remember his promise that he will never leave us as orphans. But he will come to us and that in the meantime, he has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to serve him. Be encouraged by his promise of the Holy Spirit that is with you, enabling you to serve him by his presence. 
by his promise and by his prophecy. Verses 6 through 9. We're dealing with prophecy. We're given prophecy in scripture. Not for speculation, but, but for strengthening and encouraging our faith. So when we're able to read Old Testament prophecy and see how God has worked through the ages to bring that prophecy about, it encourages us to keep on serving him. Knowing that any remaining unfulfilled prophecy surely will be fulfilled because he's already fulfilled all this. To be fair, commentators differ on what they believe verses 6 and 7 are referencing. Some say it is a reference to God's stirring of Darius to supply help and materials for the rebuilding of the temple. Others say that it refers to God's bringing future judgment on the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. That certainly could be the case, but many prophecies have an initial fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And I believe it's the case in this one. It refers ultimately to the second coming of Jesus Christ when God will shake the heavens and the earth and all rebellious nations will be conquered. Now from the entire book of Haggai, verse verse 6 is the only verse quoted in the New Testament. It is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, where the author says, And his voice shook the earth, but how he promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The author of Hebrews is writing about the final judgment when God will destroy the heavens and the earth before establishing the new heaven and the new earth. 2 Peter 3.10 2 Peter uh, 3 verses 12 through 13, Revelation 20:11, and Revelation 21:1. There is also some debate over verse 7. And what is meant by the phrase, the wealth of nations? Some translations translate the verse, the desire of nations, which would be a reference to Jesus Christ. That could be possible. But I don't believe it's probable. Due to the grammar and the reference to silver and gold, this is speaking of God's ability to provide the financial resources necessary in order to accomplish his task. Now notice that the Lord says, he will fill this house with glory. And that latter glory of this house will be greater than former glory. Again, it causes debate. How could the temple that Zerubbabel builds be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. Because it's a reference to the coming of Jesus to that temple. His presence made it even more glorious than Solomon's temple. Furthermore, his presence in the millennium as King of kings and Lord of lords will surpass the veiled glory of his first coming. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no temple because there is no need for one. As Revelation tells us, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And finally, we see the prophetic promise in verse 9 that in this place he will give peace again, multiple fulfillments. In his first coming, Jesus preached peace to both Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2.17 talks about it. We also have peace with God and with each other. And when we trust the shed blood of Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. However, the true and lasting peace of, for this world and of this world and for Jerusalem is still in the future when Jesus Christ returns. I don't want us to get hung up on... Interpreting the details of these prophecies. Because I believe it could cause us to miss the application. Here is the application. The Lord of hosts has predicted a certain and final triumph of the kingdom of his son. Therefore, you and I should be encouraged in our work for his kingdom, knowing that our work will never, ever be in vain. That's the application. That's it. He wins. Certain and final triumph. 
for the kingdom of His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss the application. Why do we walk around defeated? Why do we go around acting like we're the losers in this scenario? Why do we hang our head and shuffle our feet and we get discouraged and we act, well, well we're, we're losing, we're losing. No, we're not. Why do we... Why are we so defeated when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why are we so defeated when it comes to trying something new? Why are we so defeated when it comes to stepping out in faith and saying, Okay, God, whatever it is, we're going to do it. We're going to do something radical. We're going to do something crazy. Why are we so defeated? Church, we win. His kingdom, us as followers, win. That is the final triumph of the kingdom of the Son that we would be encouraged to do the work of His kingdom on earth. Knowing your work is never in vain. I don't know if you've ever taken any time to study the life of William Wilberforce. But it's remarkable. It's a remarkable example of a Christian who persevered in the Lord's work. He was converted in 1785. Two years later, he gave notice in the House of Commons where he served that he would bring a motion for the abolition of the slave trade. The slave trade was a very lucrative business that brought a lot of income into the British economy. The British plantations on the West Indies were dependent on slave labor for their profit. And to own slaves was a cultural institution. So for Wilberforce to undertake this task, it was of monstrous proportions. On many occasions, Wilberforce's life was threatened. He faced political pressure to back down because of the international political ramifications. If Britain outlawed slavery, the West Indian colonies threatened to declare independence from Britain and associate with the United States, which still allowed slavery. However, in spite of all the obstacles he faced, Wilberforce persevered. On March 25, 1807, following 20 years of setbacks, Wilberforce prevailed when the House voted to outlaw the slave trade. However, the battle was not over. Wilberforce battled on for the next 26 years until his death to abolish not only the slave trade, but abolish slavery altogether. The decisive vote came on that issue on July 26, 1833, just three days before Wilberforce died, after 46 years of battle, slavery was outlawed in the British Empire. Here's the thing. Wilberforce was not a one-issue man. He was involved in many missionary endeavors and in many social causes. He worked to alleviate harsh child labor conditions. He worked for agricultural reform, for prison reform, and for the prevention of cruelty to animals. Wilberforce continually sought to win his colleagues to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And we can look at a life like Wilberforce's and think, wow, I could never measure up to such a man. You're probably right. But let me tell you what you can do. You can persevere in whatever the Lord has given to you. And you can do it for his kingdom. You can trust that God is in control at all times and all circumstances. And there has never been and there never will be a time when God is not in control. Or else he's not God. The results of the people building the temple in Haggai's day and persevering would bring more glory to God. In fact, more than they ever really knew. And so it is with our obedience church and building his spiritual temple, the church. It would glorify him, but it will never happen if we just sit there and have the right attitude. 
It will never happen if we say, boy, it sure would be great to build God's house. It sure would be great to build God's temple. Boy, we sure could get excited about building God's temple. Boy, let me show you the blueprints. Let me show you the plans to building God's temple. It would be so awesome. You got to work. You know, not long after I came here to be the pastor, somebody said, well, we got some, we got some blueprints somewhere of that building we were going to build out there on a, that piece of land that we have. How long ago was that? You said, well, were you blaming me? I'm not blaming anybody. It takes work, doesn't it? takes perseverance, doesn't it? Yeah. It's hard work. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes we get discouraged. But oh, church, he's with us. He walks with us. And he encourages us. And he knows our discouragement. There's a lot of talk about seeing churches grow. A lot of talk about seeing churches revitalize. But it takes action. It means we must be willing to do so I say to you this morning, if you're discouraged in your service for the Lord, he wants to encourage you to persevere. But guess what? It's not for your glory. It's for his. And may his sovereignty, knowing that he is in control at all times, in all circumstances, no matter what, may his sovereignty bring encouragement to a discouraged people. And so this morning I call on you. If you're discouraged, trust in the Lord's sovereignty and persevere. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't back down. Don't say, well, well, pastor, that was plans that we had years ago. What are we going to do now? You don't quit. You persevere. And the Lord's work you know it's for His glory. And if you have not started down the path of perseverance for the glory of God, I challenge you, it's time to get busy because it will not get done by sitting in a pew. It's time to do His work. Will you pray with me?